everybody. Welcome to another episode of PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Soboleski. And today we're going to talk about a benign yet terrifying condition called breath-holding spells, or as I like to call them, breath of the wild. So let me start off with a clinical scenario. A reasonably terrified mom of a toddler brings her boy into the emergency department after what she felt was a seizure. She states that her older daughter took a piece of candy away from the little boy, and then he started to cry, turned blue, and fell to the ground. He hadn't eaten any candy yet, so she didn't think he was choking on it. She stuck a finger in his mouth, blew in his face several times, and then he just started breathing normally. And within about 90 seconds, he was up, crying again, pointing at his sister, asking for candy. She said that there were no history of events such as these in her son or in other members of the family. His vital signs, his physical exam are all unremarkable, including no signs of head trauma. And he's got a completely normal neuro exam and he has normal development. He was kept NPO in triage, but now he is in the exam room saying that he wants candy. Mom is very scared and wants to know what happened. You tell her, appropriately, that this was a cyanotic breath-holding spell. And certainly from my description of the case, this is something that absolutely terrifies parents. Now, breath-holding spells occur when a child has episodic apnea, followed by a loss of consciousness and postural tone. So approximately 5% of children will have one or more. They usually occur between 6 and 18 months of age, and generally not after 6 years old or before 6 months. An equal proportion of them are male and female. 80 to 90% of kids will have their first before they are 18 months old. Up to 15 to 25% have multiple episodes daily, which I bet would be very stressful. And most children will have anywhere between one and six episodes per week if they have multiple. In one out of four cases, another family member has had one. There's even a suggestion that there's an autosomal dominant trait reported. They can be confused with seizures or syncope, but they're often preceded by discipline or conflict. There's no post-ictal phase, there's no loss of continence, and certainly in the long run, there's no increased risk of seizure development later in life. There's two specific types of breath-holding spells. Now, the one I described earlier was cyanotic, so let's talk about that one first. So anger, frustration, or pain usually precede crying, then forced expiration, then a reflex apnea, which leads to cyanosis. The transient hypocapnia and hypoxia can lead to loss of consciousness. The cyanosis often happens much quicker than would be expected with voluntary holding of the breath. Most patients recover within one to two minutes, and that transient cyanosis that appears around the mouth and face dissipates quickly. It's rare, but some kids can actually fall asleep for 30 to 60 minutes afterwards. Complicating matters is the fact that some children will cry and scream before you put them to bed because they love you so much and they don't want to go to bed that it will trigger a breath-holding spell, and then they'll go to sleep because they're tired. Don't confuse this for post-ictal phase if the history is supportive. Physiologically, these types of spells have a lot in common with syncope, We theorize that there's transient increases in intrathoracic pressure secondary to a forced valsalva mover with all of the crying and glottic closure, which leads to decreased pulmonary venous return, a transient decrease in brain perfusion, and therefore loss of consciousness. 
they're really quite reproducible, and many parents will describe that the cyanotic breath-holding spells have very similar triggers. Now, the other kind of breath-holding spell that you'll see commonly is a pallid breath-holding spell, or paleness. Usually, this is seen in response to a painful vent, generally to the head or upper torso. Children turn pale, as opposed to blue, and lose consciousness with little crying preceding the event. Pallid breath-holding spells generally happen about 30 seconds after minor trauma. An example would be a toddler who is moseying across the living room and gently smacks his head on the side of an end table. The following sequence is generally observed. You get apnea, then pallor and diaphoresis, then loss of muscle tone. Episodes that last more than a few seconds may display some abnormal posturing, colonus, or outright convulsions. Kids are generally sleepy for several minutes, but are then back to their baseline level of alertness relatively quickly. Now, I wouldn't mention this one in casual conversation at the dinner table with a group of parents, but children can actually have a period of bradycardia or brief 5 to 10 seconds of asystole during these spells. It's not harmful, there's no damage to the brain, heart, or other organs, but I'll just put that out there. So ultimately, the diagnosis of breath-holding spells can be made clinically in almost all cases. Maybe the parent even recorded the event for you. But otherwise, take a very good history. Know the sequence of events. Know what happened beforehand. Was there a temper tantrum? Was there minor trauma? Making the diagnosis of breath-holding spells also means that you do not have significant concerns for traumatic brain injury or non-accidental trauma, that the vital signs and the cardiac, pulmonary, and neurologic exams are all normal, and that the kid generally has normal development. If you're not 100% sure that it wasn't syncope, go ahead and get an EKG. Calculate that QT. If the event sounds suspiciously like a seizure, but it was the kid's first event, they're afebrile, and they look really well, well, then referral to an outpatient neurologist is warranted. NED imaging for the child with a normal neurologic exam and the first-time unprovoked seizure uh, is generally not needed. Now, interestingly, there are some studies that have indicated that children with iron deficiency anemia may be more prone to breath-holding spells. So you could get a hemoglobin level and other studies in the ED, but it would also be appropriate to have this done at the child's primary care doctor because it's not like you're going to start the kid on iron in the ED, travel back in time, and prevent the presenting breath-holding spell in the first place or necessarily prevent other ones in the future. In theory, anemia may increase a child's vulnerability to hypoxia, and iron is also thought to play a part in catecholine metabolism and neurotransmitter function. Therefore, a deficiency may affect autoregulation of neurocardiogenic function, leading to a higher likelihood of breath-holding spells in the first place. In children with recurrent spells, I do discuss this with families. It's not mandated that you get testing in the ED, but you know, getting a hemoglobin level or a CBC is relatively cheap and benign in the long run. I would also discuss recurrent breath-holding spells with the primary care doctor, especially if they want to proceed with additional workup, like following up with a neurologist or cardiologist. But the bottom line is that most of the ones that you will see in the emergency department are the first presentation for that family member and child, and they are very frightening. So you need to spend time getting a good history, making an accurate clinical diagnosis, and then providing reassurance that the child was not going to die and did not have injury to their brain or cardiovascular system because of the event.
listen to the parents' concerns, answer all of their questions, and make sure they're prepared for the eventual second coming of the Breath of the Wild. Well, that's all I've got on breath-holding spells. You can check out a lot more educational content on PEMblog.com. Follow me on Twitter at PEMtweets and leave a review on iTunes. I'd really appreciate the feedback. Until next time, this has been Brad Soboleski for PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. Let's